You are listening to the Mystical City of God in a Year podcast. I'm Father Edward Looney. Throughout the year, I'm reading and reflecting on the four-volume, over 2,500-page work by the Venerable Maria of Agreda. If you would like to discuss today's readings, you can head on over to Facebook, and there you'll find the Mystical City of God in a Year podcast group, and you'll be able to share your own thoughts and reflections with others who are listening and following along. Let us now thank God for the life of Venerable Maria of Agreda. Almighty God, you will that all people know the saving power of Jesus' name. Throughout time, you have sent missionaries to your people who proclaim the good news. We thank you for sending Storm Maria to the Humano people and planting the seeds of the gospel in their heart and in our land. She taught them the good news and prepared them for baptism. We look to her example in holy life and wish to be taught by her today. Sor Maria, teach us how to pray and meditate. Teach us how to imitate the virtues of Our Lady. Teach us the mysteries of our faith. Almighty God, stir a flame in our hearts the same missionary fervor of Sor Maria, so we may be as emboldened as she was to proclaim the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit. God, forever and ever. Amen. Today is day number 237. We are reading from Volume 3, Book 6, Chapter 12, Paragraphs 493 to 502. Chapter 12. The Prayer of Our Lord in the Garden and Its Mysteries, What His Most Blessed Mother Knew of It. 493. By the wonderful mysteries which our Savior Jesus had celebrated in the Cenacle, the reign which, according to His inscrutable decree, his eternal father had consigned to him was well established, and the Thursday night of his last supper having already advanced some hours, he chose to go forth to the dreadful battle of his suffering and death by which the redemption was to be accomplished. The Lord then rose to depart from the hall of the miraculous feast, and also Most Holy Mary left her retreat in order to meet him on the way. At this face-to-face meeting of the Prince of Eternity and of the Queen, a sword of sorrow pierced the heart of son and mother, inflicting a pang of grief beyond all human and angelic thought. The sorrowful mother threw herself at the feet of Jesus, adoring him as her true God and Redeemer. The Lord, looking upon her with a majesty divine, and at the same time with the overflowing love of a son, spoke to her only these words, My mother... I shall be with thee in tribulation. Let us accomplish the will of the Eternal Father and the salvation of men. The great queen offered herself as a sacrifice with her whole heart and asked his blessing. Having received this, she returned to her retirement, where, by a special favor of the Lord, she was enabled to see all that passed in connection with her divine Son. Thus, she was enabled to accompany him and cooperate with him in his activity, as far as devolved upon her. The owner of the house, who was present at this meeting, moved by a divine impulse, offered his house and all that is contained to the mistress of heaven, asking her to make use of all that was his during her stay in Jerusalem, and the queen accepted his offer with humble thanks. The thousand angels of her guard and forms visible to her, together with some of the pious women of her company, remained with the lady. 494. 
Our Redeemer and Master left the house of the Senegal with all the men who had been present at the celebration of the Mysterious Supper, and soon many of them dispersed in the different streets in order to attend to their own affairs. Followed by his twelve apostles, the Lord directed his steps toward Mount Olivet, outside and close to the eastern walls of Jerusalem. Judas, alert in his treacherous solicitude for the betrayal of his divine master, conjectured that Jesus intended to pass the night in prayer, as was his custom. This appeared to him a most opportune occasion for delivering his master into the hands of his confederates, the scribes and the Pharisees. Having taken this dire resolve, he lagged behind and permitted the master and his apostles to proceed. Unnoticed by the latter, he lost them from the view and departed in all haste to his own ruin and destruction. Within him was the turmoil of sudden fear and anxiety, interior witness of the wicked deed he was about to commit. Driven on in the stormy hurricane of thoughts raised by his bad conscience, he arrived breathless at the house of the high priests. On the way it happened that Lucifer, perceiving the haste of Judas in procuring the death of Jesus Christ, and as I have related in chapter 10, fearing that after all Jesus might be the true Messiah, came toward him in the shape of a very wicked man, a friend of Judas acquainted with the intended betrayal. In this shape Lucifer could speak to Judas without being recognized. He tried to persuade him that this project of selling his master did at first seem advisable on account of the wicked deeds attributed to Jesus, but that having more maturely considered the matter, he did not now deem it advisable to deliver him over to the priests and the Pharisees, for Jesus was not so bad as Judas might imagine, nor did he deserve death, and besides, he might free himself by some miracles and involve his betrayer into greater difficulties. 495. Thus Lucifer, seized by new fear, sought to counteract the suggestions with which he had previously filled the heart of the perfidious disciple against his author. He hoped to confuse his victim, but his new villainy was in vain, for Judas, having voluntarily lost his faith and not being troubled by any such strong suspicions as Lucifer, preferred to take his master's life rather than to encounter the wrath of the Pharisees for permitting him to live unmolested. Filled with this fear and his abominable avarice, he took no account of the counsel of Lucifer, although he had no suspicion of his not being his friend, whose shape the devil had assumed. Being stripped of grace, he neither desired nor could be persuaded by anyone to turn back in his malice. The priests, having heard that the author of life was in Jerusalem, had gathered to consult about the promised betrayal. Judas entered and told him that he had left his master with the other disciple on their way to Mount Olivet, that this seemed to be the most favorable occasion for his arrest, since on this night they had already made sufficient preparation and taken enough precaution to prevent his escaping their hands by his artifices and cunning tricks. The sacrilegious priests were much rejoiced, and began to busy themselves to procure an armed force for the arrest of the most innocent lamb. 496. In the meanwhile, our divine Lord, with the eleven apostles, was engaged in the work of our salvation, and the salvation of those who were scheming as death. Unheard of and wonderful contest between the deepest malice of man and the unmeasurable goodness and charity of God. If this stupendous struggle between good and evil began with the first man, it certainly reached its highest point in the death of the repairer. For then, good and evil stood face to face and exerted their highest powers, 
human malice in taking away the life and honor of the Creator and Redeemer, and His immense charity freely sacrificing both for men. According to our way of reasoning, it was, as it were, necessary that the most holy soul of Christ, yea, that even his divinity, should revert to his blessed mother, in order that he might find some object in creation in which his love should be recompensed, and some excuse for disregarding the dictates of his justice. For in this creature alone could he expect to see his passion and death bring forth full fruit. In her immeasurable holiness did his justice find some compensation for human malice, and in the humility and constant charity of this great lady could be deposited the treasures of his merits, so that afterwards, as the new phoenix from the rekindled ashes, his church might arise from his sacrifice. The consolation, which the humanity of Christ drew from the certainty of his blessed mother's holiness, gave him strength, and as it were new courage, to conquer the malice of mortals, and he counted himself well recompensed for suffering such atrocious pains by the fact that to mankind belonged all his most beloved mother. 497. All that happened the great lady observed from her retreat. She perceived the sinister thoughts of the obstinate Judas, how he separated himself from the rest of the apostles, how Lucifer spoke to him in the shape of his acquaintance, and all the rest that passed when he reached the priests and helped them to arrange with so much haste the capture of the Lord. The sorrow which then penetrated the chaste heart of the Virgin Mother, the acts of virtue which she elicited at the sight of such wickedness, and what else she then did, cannot be properly explained by us. We can only say that in all she acted with the plenitude of wisdom and holiness, and with the approbation of the Most Holy Trinity. She pitied Judas and wept over the loss of that perfidious disciple. She sought to make recompense for his malice by adoring, confessing, praising, and loving the Lord, whom he delivered by such fiendish and insulting treachery. She offered herself with eagerness to die in her son's stead if necessary. She prayed for those who were plotting the capture and death of her divine lamb, for she regarded them as prizes to be estimated according to the infinite value of his precious lifeblood, for which the most prudent lady foresaw they would be bought. 498. Our Savior pursued his way across the torrent of the, the Kedron to Mount Olivet and enter the Garden of Gethsemane. Then he said to all the apostles, Wait for me and seat yourselves here while I go a short distance from here to pray. Do you also pray in order that you may not enter into temptation? The Divine Master gave them this advice in order that they might be firm in the temptations of which he had spoken to them at the supper that all of them should be scandalized on account of what they should see him suffer that night, that Satan would assail them to sift and stir them up by his false suggestions, for the pastor, as prophesied, was to be ill-treated and wounded, and the sheep were to be dispersed. Then the master of life, leaving the band of eight apostles at the place, and taking with him St. Peter, St. John, and St. James, referred to another place where they could neither be seen nor heard by the rest. Mark 14.33 being with the three apostles, he raised his eyes up to the Eternal Father, confessing and praising him as was his custom, which interiorly he prayed in fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah, permitting death to approach the most innocent of men, and commanding the sword of divine justice to be unsheathed over the shepherd and descend upon the God-man with all its deathly force. 
In this prayer, Christ our Lord offered himself anew to the Eternal Father in satisfaction of his justice for the rescue of the human race, and he gave consent that all the torments of his passion and death be let loose over that part of the human being which was capable of suffering. From that moment he suspended and strained whatever consolation or relief would otherwise overflow from the impassable to the passable part of his being, so that in this dereliction his passion and sufferings might reach the highest degree possible. The Eternal Father granted these petitions and approved this total sacrifice of the sacred humanity. 499. The prayer was, as it were, the floodgate, through which the rivers of his sufferings were to find entrance, like the resistless onslaught of the ocean, as was foretold by David, Psalm 68, 2. And immediately he began to be sorrowful and feel the anguish of his soul, and therefore said to the apostles, My soul is sorrowful unto death. As these words and the sorrow of Christ our Lord contain such great mysteries for our instruction, I will say something of what has been shown me, and as far as I can understand concerning them. The Lord permitted this sorrow to reach the highest degree, both naturally and miraculously possible, in his sacred humanity. This sorrow penetrated not only all the lower faculties of his human life, insofar as his natural appetites were concerned, but also all the highest faculties of his body and soul, by which he perceived the inscrutable judgments and decrees of the divine justice and the reprobation of so many, for whom he was to die. This was indeed by far the greater source of his sorrow, as we shall see farther on. He did not say that he was sorrowful on account of his death, but unto death, for the sorrow naturally arising from the repugnance to the death he was about to undergo was a minor fear. The sacrifice of his natural life, besides being necessary for our redemption, was also demanded as a return for the joy of having in his human body experienced the glory of the transfiguration. On account of the glory then communicated to his sacred body, he held himself bound to subject it to suffering, deeming that a recompense of what he had received. This we see verified also in the three apostles, who were witnesses as well of the glorious as of the sorrowful mystery. This they themselves now understood, being informed thereof by a special enlightenment. 500. Moreover, the immense love of our Savior for us demanded that full sway be given to this mysterious sorrow. For if he caused it to stop short of the highest, which that sorrow was capable of, his love would not have rested satisfied, nor would it have been so evident that his love was not to be extinguished by the multitude of tribulations. Canticle 8.7. At the same time, he showed thereby his charity toward the apostles, which were with him and were now disturbed by perceiving that his hour of suffering and death, which he had so often and in so many ways foretold them, was now at hand. This interior disturbance and fear confounded and confused them without their daring to speak of it. Therefore, the most loving Savior sought to put them more at rest by manifesting to them his own sorrow unto death. By the sight of his own affliction and anxiety, they were to take heart at the fears and anxieties of their own souls. There was still another mystery contained in the sorrow of the Lord, which referred especially to the three apostles, St. Peter, James, and John. For more than all the rest, they were imbued with an exalted conception of the greatness and divinity of their master, as far as the excellence of his doctrine, the holiness of his works, and the power of his miracles were concerned. They realized more completely and wondered more deeply at his dominion over all creation, in order that they might be confirmed 
in their belief of his being a man capable of suffering. It was befitting that they should know, as eyewitnesses, his truly human sorrow and affliction. By the testimony of these three apostles, who were distinguished by such favors, the Holy Church was afterwards to be well fortified against the errors which the devil would try to spread against the belief in the humanity of Christ our Savior. Thus would the rest of the faithful have the consolation of this firmly established belief in their own affliction and sorrow. 501. Interiorly enlightened in this truth, the three apostles were exhorted by the author of life by the words, Wait for me, watch and pray with me. He wished to inculcate the practice of all that he had taught them and to make them constant in their belief. He thereby reminded them of the danger of backsliding and of the duty of watchfulness and prayer in order to recognize and resist the enemy. Remaining always firm in the hope of seeing his name exalted after, after the ignominy of his passion. With this exhortation, the Lord separated himself a short distance from the three apostles. He threw himself with his divine face upon the ground and prayed to the Eternal Father, Father, if it is possible, let this chalice pass from me. This prayer Christ our Lord uttered, though he had come down from heaven, and with the express purpose of really suffering and dying for men, though he had counted as not the shame of his passion, had willingly embraced it and rejected all human consolation, though he was hastening with most ardent love into the jaws of death to affront sorrows and afflictions, though he had set such a high price upon men that he determined to redeem them at the shedding of his life-blood, since by virtue of his divine and human wisdom and in his inextinguishable love he had shown himself so superior to the natural fear of death that it seems this petition did not arise from any motive solely coming from himself, that this was so in fact was made known to me in the light which was which was vouchsafed me concerning the mysteries contained in this prayer of the Savior. 502. In order to explain what I mean, I must state that on this occasion Jesus treated with the Eternal Father about an affair, which was by far the most important of all, namely, in how far the redemption gained by his passion and death should affect the hidden predestination of the saints. In this prayer, Christ offered on his part to the Eternal Father his torments, his precious blood, and his death for all men, as an abundant price for all the mortals and for each one of the humans born to that time and yet to be born to the end of the world. And on the part of mankind, he presented the infidelity, ingratitude, and contempt with which sinful man was to respond to his frightful passion and death. He presented also the loss which he was to sustain from those who would not profit by his clemency and condemn themselves to eternal woe though to die for his friends and for the predestined, was pleasing to him and longingly desired by our Savior. Yet to die for the reprobate was indeed bitter and painful, for with regard to them the impelling motive for accepting the pains of death was wanting. This sorrow was what the Lord called a chalice, for the Hebrews were accustomed to use the word for signifying anything that implied great labor and pain. The Savior himself had already used this word on another occasion, when, speaking to the sons of Zebedee, he asked them whether they could drink the chalice which the Son of Man was to drink. This chalice, then, was so bitter for Christ our Lord, because he knew that his drinking it would not only be without fruit for the reprobate, but would be a scandal to them, and redound to their greater chastisement and pain, on account of their despising it. 1 Corinthians one twenty-three. This concludes our reading today for day number 237. We've been reading from Volume 3, Book 6, 
chapter 12, paragraphs 493 to 502. We learn a little bit about Jesus today as he enters the garden and begins his prayer. We learn that Judas, alert in his treacherous solicitude for the betrayal of his divine master, conjectured that Jesus intended to pass the night in prayer, as was his custom. Jesus often would spend long hours at night in prayer. He must have only needed a few hours to rest. And then he would pick up and go about teaching and healing and traversing the countryside of the Holy Land once again. And so Judas, knowing that Jesus prayed in the evening hours, knew that he, this was the opportune time to hand Jesus over to death. We also notice the prayer of Our Lady. So Jesus prays, we hear his prayer, but we heard that she prayed for those who were plotting the capture and death of her divine lamb. For she regarded them as prizes to be estimated according to the infinite value of his precious lifeblood. Mary, knowing what was going to happen, did not relent, did not give up in praying for Judas. And so we should never give up in our prayer either. And as always, we should invite Our Lady to pray with us. Mary, join me in my prayer now as I pray for this intention. Another line from our reading today, which I think is comforting for all of us, by the sight of his own affliction and anxiety, they were to take to heart at the fears and anxieties of their own souls. So this is Jesus. He has anxiety. He has fear. But yet, because he experienced these things, and because we experience them, the trial of Jesus gives us strength when we face our own situations. Jesus perseveres, and so do we persevere. And we have those words of Jesus that he spoke all throughout the Gospels. He says, do not be afraid. And so when we have fear or when we have anxiety, we can say, Jesus, you know what it's like. And I hand this over to you now. Take this away from me. It's really praying like he did in the garden. Let this chalice pass from me. And then finally, we heard about that instruction, watch and pray. And this is what it meant. He thereby reminded them of the danger of backsliding and of the duty of watchfulness and prayer in order to recognize and resist the enemy remaining always firm in the hope of seeing his name exalted after the ignominy of his passion. So be vigilant in your prayer. Pray daily. Don't give up on prayer. Never let a day pass without prayer. And if you remain faithful and steadfast, well, you'll be able to be alert for when the evil one is prowling about you. I'm Father Edward Looney, and throughout the year I'm reading from the mystical city of God. I'm grateful you joined me today, and I hope you'll join me again tomorrow. Until then, may God bless you, and Mary pray for you.